This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello and welcome to another edition of Witnesses of History. For the end of the year, the 29th of December, uh, the first reading is just dated December, but the other two are from the 29th. And we start with Keith Douglas, who was uh, in World War II, but he was also an English poet. He survived the North African campaign, uh, but he was killed later, sadly, in Normandy. And he is writing about his experiences in North Africa in the Western Desert in December 1942. We began to creep forward, swinging west again to face the enemy. As we advanced, I remembered how we had sat so long during my first action within a stone's throw of enemy infantry, and I began to look very carefully at the trenches we passed. About 200 yards from the German derelicts, which were now furiously belching inky smoke, I looked down into the face of a man lying hunched up in a pit. His expression of agony seemed so acute and urgent, his stare so wild and despairing, that for a moment I thought him alive. He was like a cleverly posed waxwork, for his position suggested a paroxysm, an orgasm of pain. He seemed to move and writhe, but he was stiff. The dust which powdered his face like an actor's lay on his wide open eyes whose stare held my gaze like the ancient mariners. He had tried to cover his wounds with towels against the flies. His haversack lay open from which he had taken towels and dressings. His water bottle lay tilted with the cork out. Towels and haversack were dark with dried blood, darker still with a great concourse of flies. This picture, as they say, told a story and filled me with useless pity. The men with me were walking along, bent double as though searching the ground. I said to them, it's no good ducking down. If you're going to be hit, you're going to be hit. Run across the open ground. Run! They began to trot reluctantly and I ran ahead. Presently I saw two men crawling on the ground, wriggling forward very slowly in a kind of embrace. As I came up on them, I recognised one of them as Robin, the RHA observation officer whose aid I had been asking earlier in the day. I recognised first his fleece-lined suede waistcoat and polished brass shoulder titles, and then his face, strained and tired with pain. His left foot was smashed to pulp, mingled with the remainder of a boot. But as I spoke to Robin, saying, "'Have you got a tourniquet, Robin?' and he answered apologetically, "'I'm afraid I haven't, Peter.' I looked at the second man. Only his clothes distinguished him as a human being, and they were badly charred. His face had gone. In place of it was a huge yellow vegetable. The eyes blinked in it, without lushage, and a grotesque huge mouth dribbled and moaned like a child exhausted with crying. Robin's mangled leg was not bleeding. A paste of blood and sand or congealed slabs of blood covered it. I thought it would be better left, as it was then bandaged, now that the air had closed it. I'll go on back, I said, and get hold of something to pick you up. A scout car or something. Stay here. I ran on. Before I'd gone a hundred yards, I was ashamed. My own mind accused me of running to escape rather than running for help. But I hurried on, 
determined to silence these accusations by getting a vehicle of some kind and bringing it back in the face of the enemy if necessary. I knew that if only I could gain the cover of the ridge and stop to think, and if I could find where the regiment had gone, I should be able to reorganise myself and go back. And now for the brief account that appeared in the Daily Telegraph on December the 29th, 1879, of the Tay Bridge disaster. This is reported from Dundee the previous night. A terrific gale swept over Dundee and a portion of the Tay Bridge was blown down while the train from Edinburgh due at 7.15 was passing. Mr Smith, the station master at Tay Bridge, and Mr Roberts, locomotive superintendent, determined, notwithstanding the fierce gale, to walk across the bridge as far as possible. The first thing that caught their eye was the water spurting from a pipe which was laid across the bridge for the supply from the Dundee reservoirs. Going out a little further, they could distinctly see, by the, end, by the aid of strong moonlight, that there was a large gap in the bridge. At Browty Ferry, four miles from the bridge, several mailbags had come ashore, and there it was now, no doubt, that the train was in the river. And now we go right back to December the 29th, 1170, and Edward Grimm's report from Canterbury Cathedral on the murder of Thomas Becket on the orders of King Henry II. Therefore, the said persons, no knights but miserable wretches, as soon as they landed, summoned the king's officials, whom the archbishop had excommunicated, and by lyingly declaring that they were acting by the king's orders and in his name, they got together a band of followers. They then collected in a body, ready for any impious deed, and on the fifth day after the Nativity of Christ, that is, on the day after the festival of the Holy Innocents, gathered together against the innocent. The hour of dinner being over, the saint departed with some of his household from the crowd into an inner room to transact some business, leaving a crowd waiting in the hall outside. The four knights, with one attendant, entered. They were received with respect as the servants of the king and well known, and those who had waited on the archbishop, being now themselves at dinner, invited them to table. They scorned the food, thirsting rather for blood, by their order, the archbishop was informed that four men had arrived who wished to speak with them from the king. He consented, and they entered. They sat for a long time in silence and did not salute the archbishop or speak to him. Nor did the man of wise counsel salute them immediately they came in. That, according to the scripture, by their words thou shalt be justified. He might discover that their intentions from their questions. After a while, however, he turned to them, and carefully scanning the face of each one, he greeted them in a friendly manner. But the wretches who had made a treaty with death answered his greeting with curses, and ironically prayed that God might help him. At this speech of bitterness and malice, the man of God coloured deeply, now seeing that they had come for his hurt. Whereupon Fitzurse, who seemed to be the chief and the most eager for crime among them, breathing fury, broke out in these words, We have somewhat to say to thee by the king's command. Say if thou wilt what that we will tell you it here before all. But the archbishop knew what they were going to say and replied, These things should not be spoken in private or in the chamber, but in public. 
Now these wretches so burned for the slaughter of the archbishop that if the doorkeeper had not called back the clerks for the archbishop had ordered them all to go out, they would have killed him, as they afterwards confessed, with the shaft of his cross which stood by. When those who had gone out returned, he who had before thus reviled the archbishop said, The king, when peace was made between you and all disputes were ended, sent you back free to your own sea, as you demanded. But you, on the other hand, adding insult to your former injuries, have broken the peace and wrought evil in yourself against your lord. Now, said these butchers, this is the king's command, that you depart with all your men from the kingdom and the land which lies under his sway, for from this day there can be no peace with you or any of yours, for you have broken the peace. Then said he, Let your threats cease, and your wranglings be stilled. I trust in the King of heaven, and for his own suffered on the cross, for from this day no one shall see the sea between me and my church. I came not to fly. Here he who wants me shall find me, and it befitteth not the king so to command. Sufficient are the insults which I and mine have received from the king's servants without further threats. Confounded at these words, the knights sprang up, for they could hear his firmness no longer. And coming close to him, they said, We declare to you that you have spoken in peril of your head. Do you come to kill me? He answered. I have committed my cause to the judge of all, wherefore I am not moved by threats, nor are your swords more ready to strike than is my soul for martyrdom. Seek him who flees from you. Me you will find foot to foot in the battle of the Lord. As they went out with tumult and insults, he who was fitly surnamed Ursus, a bear, called out in brutal sort, In the king's name we order you, both clerk and monk, that ye take and hold that man, lest ye escape by flight, ere the king have full justice on his body. As they went out with these words, the man of God followed them to the door and exclaimed, Here, here shall you find me, putting his hand over his neck as though showing the place where they were to strike. He returned then to the place where he had sat before and consoled his clerks and exhorted them not to fear and, as it seemed to us who were present, waited as unperturbed, though him alone did they seek to slay, as though they had come to invite him to a bridal. Ere long back came the butchers with swords and axes and falchions and other weapons fit for the crime which their minds were set on. When they found the doors barred and they were not open to their knocking, they turned aside by a private way through the orchard to a wooden partition which they cut and hacked till they broke it down. At this terrible noise were the servants and clerks horribly affrighted and like sheep before the wharf dispersed hither and thither. Those who remained called out that he should flee to the church, but he did not forget his promise not to flee from the murderers through fear of death and refused to go. But when he would not be persuaded by arguments or prayer to take refuge in the church, the monks caught hold of him in spite of his resistance and pulled, dragged and pushed him, not heeding his clamours to be let go, and brought him to the church. But the door through which they was the way into the monks' cloisters had been carefully secured some days before, and as the tormentors were now at hand, it seemed to take away all hope of escape. But one of them, running forward, caught hold of the lock and, to the surprise of all, unfastened it with as much ease as if he had been glued to the door. When the monks had entered the church, already the four knights followed behind, and with rapid strides, with them was a certain subdeacon armed with malice like their own, 
Hugh, fitly surnamed for his wickedness, Mulclerk, who showed no reverence for God or the saints, as the result showed. When the holy archbishop entered the church, the monks stopped vespers which they had begun and ran at him, glorifying God that they saw their father whom they had heard was dead, alive and safe. They hastened by bolting the doors of their church to protect their shepherd from slaughter. But the champion, turning to them, ordered the church doors to be thrown open, saying it is not meet to make a fortress of the house of prayer. The church of Christ, though it be not shut up, is able to protect its own, and we shall triumph over the enemy rather in suffering than in fighting, for we came to suffer, not to resist. And straightway they entered the house of peace and reconciliation with swords sacrilegiously drawn, causing horror to the beholders by their very looks and their clanging of their arms. All who were present were in tumult and fright, for those who had been singing vespers now ran hither to the dreadful sight. At this point in the narrative, William Fitzstephen adds the following coda. As he descended the steps towards the door, John of Salisbury and his other clerks, save Robert the Canon and William Fitzstephen and Edward Grimm, who was newly come to him, sought shelter, some at the altars, some in hiding places, and left him. And indeed, if he had wished, the archbishop might easily have saved himself by flight, for both time and place gave occasion. It was evening, a very long night at hand, and the crypt was near wherein are many dark recesses. There was also a door nearby, which a winding stair led to the lofts and roof of the church, but none of these ways would he take. Edward Grimm continues. Inspired by fury, the knights called out, Where is Thomas Becket, traitor to the king and realm? And he answered not, they cried out, the more furiously, Where is the archbishop? At this, intrepid and fearless, as it is written, the just, like a bold lion, shall be without fear, he descended from the stair where he had been dragged by the monks in fear of the knights, and in a clear voice answered, I am here, no traitor to the king, but a priest. Why do you seek me? And whereas he had already said that he feared them not, he added, So I am ready to suffer in his name, who redeemed me by his blood. Be it far from me to flee from your swords or to depart from justice. Having thus said, he turned to the right under a pillar, having on one side the altar of the Blessed Mother of God and Ever-Virgin Mary, and on the other side St. Benedict the Confessor, by whose example and prayers, having crucified the world with its lusts, he bore all that the murderers could do with such constancy of soul as if he had been no longer in the flesh. The murderers followed him. Absolve, they cried, and restore to communion those whom you have excommunicated, and restore their powers to those whom you have suspended. He answered, There has been no satisfaction, and I will not absolve them. Then you shall die, they cried, and receive what you deserve. I am ready, he replied, to die for my Lord, that in my blood the church may obtain liberty and peace. But in the name of Almighty God, I forbid you to hurt my people, whether clerk or lay. Thus, piously and thoughtfully, did the noble martyr provide that no one near him should be hurt, or the innocent be brought to death, whereby his glory should be dimmed in the as he hastened to Christ. Thus did it become the martyr knight to follow in the footsteps of his captain and saviour, who, when the wicked sought him, said, If you seek me, let those go their way. 
Then they laid sacrilegious hands on him, pulling and dragging him that they might kill him outside the church or carry him away a prisoner, as they afterwards confessed. But when he could not be forced from the pillar, one of them pressed on him and clung to him more closely. Him he pushed off, calling him Panda, and saying, Touch me not, Reginald. You owe me fealty and subjection. You and your accomplices act like madmen. The knight, fired with terrible rage at this severe repulse, waved his sword over his sacred head. No faith, he cried, nor subjection do I owe you against my fealty to my lord, the king. Then the unconquered martyr, seeing the hour at hand which should put an end to his miserable life and give him straightway the crown of immortality promised by the Lord, inclined his neck as one who prays. And joining his hands, he lifted them up and commended his cause and that of the Church of God to St. Mary and to the blessed martyr Dennis. Scarcely had he said the words than the wicked knight, fearing lest he should be rescued by the people and escape alive, leapt upon him suddenly and wounded this lamb who was sacrificed to God on the head, cutting off the top of the crown which the sacred unction of the chrism had dedicated to God, and by the same blow he wounded the arm of him who tells this. For he, when the others, both monks and clerks, fled, stuck close to the sainted archbishop and held him in his arms till the one he interposed was almost severed. Behold, the simplicity of the dove, the wisdom of the serpent, in the martyr who opposed his body to those who struck that he might preserve his head, that is his soul and the church unharmed, nor would he use any forethought against those who destroyed the body whereby he might escape. O worthy shepherd who gave himself so boldly to the wolves that his flock might not be torn. Because he had rejected the world, the world, in wishing to crush him unknowingly, exalted him. Then he received a second blow on the head, but still stood firm. At the third blow he fell on his knees and elbows, offering himself a living victim and saying in a low voice, For the name of Jesus and the protection of the church, I am ready to embrace death. Then the third knight inflicted a terrible wound as he lay, by which the sword was broken against the pavement, and the crown, which was large, was separated from the head, so that the blood white with the brain and the brain red with blood dyed the surface of the Virgin Mother Church with the life and death of the confessor and martyr in the colours of the lily and the rose. The fourth knight prevented any from interfering, so that the others might freely perpetrate the murder. As to the fifth... No knight but that clerk who had entered with the knights, that a fifth blow might not be wanting to the martyr who was in other things like to Christ, he put his foot on the neck of the holy priest and precious martyr, and horrible to say, scattered his brains and blood over the pavement, calling out to the others, Let us away, knights! He will rise no more. Listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matias, www.soundimage.org. <laughs>